very pleased to introduce to you Phyllis Lawson, who is the author of... Phyllis, why don't you tell us the name of your book? Yes, the name of my memoir is uh, Quilt of Souls. And tell, and us, was, tell us about the Quilt of Souls. Well, it's, it's basically a memoir, uh, and I'm going to call it my memoir as well as my grandmother Lula Horn's memoir. She was born in 1883, and um, she raised me from the time I was four years old. Um, I'm originally from Michigan. Uh, I was born in 1953. However, it was during that time where it was the, the, the great migration. Well, a lot of blacks went north. And my mother and father were a product of that great mi- migration of the 50s. But after all, when you want a lot of um, family members, they trace their way up north, and then they start running into financial difficulty, having too many children, trying to locate jobs. Sometimes a, a child or two gets sent down south, and my mother had six children, and I think I got caught up in have, with my parents having too many kids too soon, so they, I guess they just couldn't afford me. So I was sent down south uh, to rural, very rural Alabama in 1957, and there I was with my grandparents, who I've never met before in my life. And at that point, I, I felt abandoned um, because you're taken away from uh, an environment that you, you're four years old. You know, you, you, your thought process is just not there. So you feel I had some serious abandonment, abandonment issues. So my grandparents, my grandmother specifically, um, was a quilter. She was born in 1883. And... Um, and through the making of quilts, I was able to to do some healing because her the quilts that she made told stories of people's lives. She would only quilt um, quilt of um, put people's clothes in of, of of people who had passed on. So her quilt told stories of 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 her ancestors and her loved ones. And we would sit in the front yard, and she would put pieces of of these people's clothing into this quilting and each piece she put in she would tell the story of their life or how they lived and how they died and I was four years old and I'm listening to these stories so over the course of those those nine years that I was with my grandmother she told the same story over and over and over again and she made this beautiful quilt that I still have today and it have people's clothes and not only that that that's the first part of the story but the second part of the story without giving away too much at the age of almost 12, again, I was taken from my grandmother and sent back up north with my mother. Um, my mother just came and grabbed me. No, no, um, I didn't know what was going on. I, I, was still, I was still a child. I was a preteen. And I felt abandoned once again. You know, it's okay. But what, you abandoned once, but then being abandoned and, and having these feelings two times in your life at that young age was, 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 was very very um it affected my life a, a whole lot I, i'm sure it would. Let, me, was... let me stop you there because i'd like to go back oh, sure. to okay. Okay. um more of the beginning if you okay. will um sure in in your book the quilt of souls your story actually begins at the age of four so i'd like for you to take us to that day as best you can uh that you in one minute, were at home with your family, mm-hmm. and in the next minute, you were in a car with strangers being driven to you knew not where. 
Um, you know, and, and my theory is when you when you're that young, either two one or two things are going to happen. Either you're going to block all those memories out, or you're going to remember them very well. And I remember that day when I was just a car pulled up in my front front yard. My sister was doing putting yellow ribbons in my hair, and the next thing I knew, I was getting inside this black car. My sister said you had to go with them. My parents were nowhere to be found, and all I remember is these large people. But when you're when you're very little, adults just seem large, especially when you have two people in the back seat and you're you're sitting in the middle of them. And all I remember is the chatter. And the later it got, you know, when you're when you're a kid, that's exciting for a minute. But then after that, you you know, four or five six hours go by, you begin to say you know, something is wrong, you're beginning to miss your parents and, and you're in your in the environment that you that you become accustomed to and all of a sudden I'm seeing dirt roads and then in the whole scenery, you know, began to change. And I landed on this farm and it had changed dramatically by then because my grandparents had no running water, um, no out no um indoor toilets and so it was you know, no indoor plumbing I should say and animals and chicken and 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 <laughs> all the wildlife that I have never I had never seen before in my so life. So it was hugely was different. Hugely it different. It was very different. It was D- a just, transition. It was a great transition. Describe for us, if you will, uh, the home that you left in in Detroit, Michigan. What was that like? It was. Uh, we lived in a, um, a a neighborhood that was that was fairly mixed. I mean, you, you had it was a it was a, a mixture of white, black, Italians and, and and Greeks who had came over, and they had a large Greek population. Okay. And so I grew up. At the time I was four, I played with kids who who didn't look like me. Um, it was tree lined streets, white frame homes, uh, green grass. Um, we had indoor toilets. Uh, my parents worked all the time. I barely saw my parents, and I was a twin. So my oldest sister um, took care of us while my parents was there. So during that time, you know, my, my I think my parents worked 12, 15 hours a day. And uh, when they when I did see them, they would they would come in and go to sleep. So it wasn't I didn't see a whole lot of you know much of my parents. So for me. And my other younger sisters and brothers, our sisters, my my older sisters, and the one right below my 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 other sister, they were responsible of, of caretaking. So, uh, so how many that out was there? My environment. How many children were there? How many siblings did you have? It was six of us. Six. Of, all right. It, it, yes, it ended up to be eight because two more were born after I left. So, but it was six of us when I left. So at you went from a, a household that was really full. I mean, it was full of children yes. and from your experience, but it was really full. And then all of a yes. sudden, your it, it, it was a full neighborhood. People lived close by. You could walk outside of your front door and see trees and grass and people. And then yes. all of a sudden, in in the course of several hours, you're in a place that is almost 1,000%, if not 2,000% different from what yes, you knew totally. just a few hours ago. And, you yes. know, the the uh, sense that adults used to have that children are young and they don't know anything and you don't mm-hmm. have to talk to them was, in fact, I mean, we now know that is not true, but 
Right. Your experience of sort of being snatched up and taken from one place and dropped into another, that was something that happened more often than I think we, we realize in this day and oh, age. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because children were seen and not heard back then. You you know, you really wasn't allowed to ask an adult a question. Right. You know, you, you kind of get what you would, whatever adult said, that was, that was it. That was, <laughs> that was, that was firm. And, and, and that, that didn't change. And, you know, no one even attempted it. I know I didn't to ask a question. That's why I didn't ask any questions about where I'm going, um, who are these people and why am I going? I didn't ask any questions because that was my upbringing. That was the mores for that era that you just didn't question adults. Right. You just did whatever they told you to do. first night and and the first morning that you woke up in your new home did you know at that point that that was going to be your home did you think it was a visit what did you think was going on at four years I was I was really confused because again nobody really sat down and explained to you you know that you would be leaving your home to go and live with your grandparents for X amount of years and so I didn't ask any questions. So to, as the time went by, I was always looking for that return visit from my parents to come back and get me. Or my sister, I would look up and my sister would be there. But that never happened. And like you say, when time heals wounds, that's that's pretty much what healed mine. That and my grandmother, she was she was such an amazing woman. But she but she kind of like she was very soothing. And I didn't I never even asked her. Um, would I be going back home? So, I, so that 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 part of my life never did happen. You know, there are many folks who are listening to us right now as we speak, and the idea of indoor versus uh, indoor plumbing versus no <laughs> plumbing just doesn't even that doesn't exist. I mean, that's something that happened <laughs> like twenty thousand years ago. What was that transition like for you? Well, I remember in the middle of the night, um, we had what we called, uh, you know, I hate to sound craft, but a slop jar that w- that was that was that was set, that sat next to the bed. And the slop jar is for you to do, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you would just it was a big white, um, I guess it was aluminum jar okay. that sat there, and but grandpapa was the only person that was that could do number twos. If I had to do a number two, I had to go to the to the middle of the of the cotton field with the outhouse, and I hated that because I would have to get up in the middle of the night. And my grandparents, my grandfather was really good at telling ghost stories. So you tell a ghost oh, story, and then here I have to get up in the middle of the night to go out to the cotton field. That was traumatic for me. That was one of the worst things. But um, you know that. 
you know, just going through that transition, not only the, the, the you know, the bathroom facilities, but you also had no 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 heat that you turn the button and the heat come on. My grandfather would have to get up in the morning and make a fire in order for us to get up out of the bed, you know, so we wouldn't freeze to death. And so, you you know, you're, you're working with all that as a kid, but then you you become so accustomed to that. We didn't, you know, we, we lighted we light a, a lantern to see our way around, you know, when I had to get up and go in the middle of the cotton field. My grandmother would get up and she would, she went with me for the first year, but after that I was pretty much on my own. But we have to write, light a lantern to go out, I mean, to, to, to just to have light so we can see what we're doing. And then you have the rats and the snakes that's in the wall that, that you hear all night, you know. And I remember my first few weeks there, I would hear these rats and snakes just clawing in the walls like they were fighting each other. And my and it used to scare me. And my grandmother would say, "No, nope, don't bother. They won't bother you. You won't bother. You don't bother them." So, so I began to sleep like a baby, just like they did, <laughs> because the the sounds would put me to sleep. It's very different. What did you think of that change in in your life? You know, I had to. I, you know, I really had to sit back and and and, and uh, really think about that because the kids were different. Because and I, you know, and I, they made me feel different. And e- even though they were in the same situation as I was, a lot of those kids, which I didn't know until late, much later on, that they were being raised by their grandparents, grandparents, and all the time I thought it was their parents. Okay. But I think they singled me out because I was the new kid on the block. My grandmother would make cl- make my clothes out of clothes of dead people too. So, you know, I, I know I looked a hot mess. You know, a lot of times, and a lot of the kids would bring um, Vienna sausage in the can or potted meat in the can, and my grandmother would just, you know, put a piece of mystery meat in between a biscuit, and that was my lunch that I would take to school. So kids would laugh at me because I would have to bring back. My grandmother used to make me take, bring back the same paper bag, greasy paper bag. I don't care how greasy it got, but I would have to fold that bag up and bring it back every single day. So I was singled out because I was different, because I was new, and and my grandmother was kind of like a, a, a little tad behind of the other kid grandmothers. You know, even though they didn't have any running water or no outside toiletries, but you know their lunches was better and they dressed a little better than I did. So you know, when kids that age, they have a habit of of kind of like pointing out, you sure. know, even comparing themselves to somebody that's different. And so I got pretty much caught up in that. But not seeing people of other cultures or if the different races and colors was well, it was it was it was confusing, um, and I after a while I just didn't even think about it. I I became acclimated to my environment to that school environment that I was in, and I excelled. I began to excel in that environment, even though I was I was singled out and kids would talk about me. But I excelled because I I always told stories the same stories that my grandmother told me. Um, so I, I pretty much excelled in that environment. So you became uh, almost a surrogate storyteller. Yes, exactly. Because my grandmother would tell me the stories, and I would get to school, and I would tell the same story. And my teacher loved me, and she just kind of like um, singled me out. You know, I later find, found out, Dr. Brewer, that this teacher who took me under her wing she was a cousin on my father's side. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't 
even realize that until once I had left. I mean, I think I was I was about 30 years old when I found that out. Amazing. And because I always wanted to know why did she treat me so well? Because she was very handed, heavy-handed woman. And a lot of students didn't like her because she was very girl. But she treated me so well. And I really appreciate I really appreciate that a lot. I think she made me into the person. She was Actually, she was very instrumental in my storytelling and the way I can express myself in words and thoughts. But, you know, even even that was a difference between you and the children in your class. So I would think that even yes. that had you uh, as a target of being singled out by, by your friends. Well, maybe yes. not so friendly. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely, and I and and I think that I think the, the the kids kind of picked up on that because I you know I would get called a teacher's pet, which it really didn't bother me because I really loved Miss Clay. I loved her a lot, and I I you know it go back to uh, talking about how you know the the difference between uh, even though I hadn't started the school in Detroit when I was four, but I I noticed later on how you know and that the hand-me-downs of the books and and uh, because I never saw white kids until later on much later after I had went been down south for a little while interesting and it was so much it was it it, it was so long later that when I saw these little white kids it kind of scared me <laughs> it's like who are these kids because I didn't see them when my grandfather would take me and we would go into town um to get you know what little things they did we did buy from the store and but my grandfather would always give me the cautious um the, the you know give me the cautions about don't go and don't do not drink water from this water fountain you drink at this water fountain and you stay here and you don't move so I would always get the get the get the speech get the get the spiel before I go into town because they were you know and it's probably one of the things that saved my life because I was such a freewheeling kid you uh. know um, saved, saved your life and yet constricted your life all at the same time. Yes. Phyllis, we're going to exactly. take a break, but when we come back, I would like for you to tell okay. us a little bit about Great Aunt Bessie. She sounds like she was something else. <laughs> okay. We'll I be right will. back. Phyllis, talk to us about Great Aunt Bessie. Oh wow! I think I, Great Aunt Bessie was is would be considered way above her time um, in today's world. She, one thing I have to go back to just just preface this with during my during those days of of of, of living with my grandmother, we had we lived in a house that was kind of sit way off the ground with cinder blocks and you know as we, as we discussed before children weren't allowed to sit around adults and, and, and talk and you know and listen to them talk and let's long ask them a question or you know about something that was that was considered adult like so I would crawl up under the house and just watch these women as they would come and sit in my grandmother's yard 
And from up under the house, they couldn't see me because it was dark. So I would crawl from the back of the house to the front of the house where I can, I had a, I can see them right there in this circle in the front yard, sitting around talking about everything. And that's why I got the, I got the best information from sitting around, <laughs> listening to them talk things to them. Sure. But my Aunt Bessie was one of those women who would show up in my grandmother's yard. She was, my grandfather had 16 sisters and brothers, and she was like the middle girl of those in, the, with the, in that family of 16. So she was, she was one of the ones that would show up, you could see her coming miles down the road. She would have this big walking stick, walking stick and she would be walking like Moses. <laughs> she had two long ponies, two long braids on each other, a braid on each side, fair skin because my grand, my grandfather's uh, mother was 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 mixed. So Aunt Bessie would come and she would sit in the front yard and she was just very brazen, just very outspoken. And my grandfather, my her father had cut her off uh, of any inheritance because she was so brazen and she wouldn't stay in that woman's role, so to speak. And Aunt Bessie had two or three husbands and nobody ever knew what happened to them. Uh-oh. But she lived alone in the middle of the woods and she had a, we'll call her the banker, because she kept all her money, thousands of dollars in her apron pocket and she had a, a gun in her other pocket. And, and we, everybody knew that Aunt Bessie didn't take no mess. So, and my grandfather was the only person who could kind of calm her down when she got, when she got beside herself. And so she would come there, she would talk, and, and um, she was, <laughs> she had the, I mean, she was so outspoken. She never failed. She would get in an argument with one person, one of those women, before she would leave and go on her way back home. You know, that was just St. Bessie's way. But she was, you know, she was, she was a, a different type of woman. She was, she was very outspoken. I bet you if, in, in, this, in this day and age, I can see St. Bessie being a, a banker. Okay. Or a lawyer, because that was just her 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 mannerism. I learned a lot from her, and a part of me wanted to be like her, to be outspoken. And she was one of those women that I learned resiliency from, you know. And that I don't want to give away the book, but she was one of those women that had such a a, a positive impression on me that later on in my life it came back as a benefit to me later on in how I got through some of the struggles that um, that I went through later on in my life. Well, let's do a, a, a huge fast forward and, and okay. go back to, there came a time when you went back to Detroit, as you were speaking mm-hmm. about earlier. Again, sort of unceremoniously, one minute you're here and the next minute you're there. At that point, you were how old and where were you in school at that point? I was 11 years old. I would have been turning 12 that year. I went back in the summer, um, and I would the summer of of, uh, and I would have been turning 12 that year. And um, I was in the sixth. I was going to go into the seventh grade, I believe. That was that was very traumatic for me because it, it was almost like the same way that I was pulled away initially. But this time, I think it was a, a bit more traumatic because I had to watch my grandmother cry and that you can tell that it hurt her and there was no warning that 
I was leaving. Just my my mother showed up and said that you're, you know, we're taking you back to Detroit. And I was so hurt. I was just, I was, I mean, that day, and that was why it was so difficult writing that chapter because, you know, the quote, <laughs> FDR, this day, well, that day would go down in, in, as infamy for me because that was, um, that was that was very traumatic and then I wasn't able to take my quilt with me and um I remember in the on the bus with my mother neither one of us said anything and then just got taken and placed in an environment that was just very, very different for me. I had the seven other sisters and brothers who whom I had to get to know and they were strangers to me. And, they, and, and, you know, half of them treated me so bad because I was, again, I, here I am, you know, just like going to school when I was young. Here, once again, I'm trying to acclimate myself to a group of, of, of individuals that, that I knew nothing about. And uh, this was home. If you would, as as we begin to close out our time today, clearly your grandmother was hugely important in your life. And a lot of times we, just as a society, uh, have the capacity not to value the elderly, not to value yeah. grandparents. If you could say a, a, a sentence or two about that. Yes, I, and I do believe, I'm one of those people who believe that grandmothers are the most forgotten, underrated demographic there is. And they are the ones that hold wisdom. And I tell people, because I do genealogical research too, and I tell people, talk to your to your el- to the elderly people in your life now, because once their story is gone, once they're gone from this earth, you can't go back and capture that anymore. They're gone. And that story is buried with them. My grandmother used to used to take me out to the old African, the old I mean, the old slave cemetery, and the old Native American cemetery, and she would tell me, you know, and and her, and, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase her, not in her own words, but the best stories ever are laying right here. Mm-hmm. The best unheard stories that was never told are laying right here in the cemetery. And I truly believe that because I get people who are trying to trace their their ancestors and they don't have a starting point because they didn't ask their parents or their grandparents, Well, who were your who was your father? Who was your mother? Who was your and those old artifacts, you know, that, that their parents or grandparents have passed on to them, believe me and trust me, that old quilt, that old brooch, that old whatever there's a story behind it. I am sure of it. Absolutely. But if you don't ask, you're not going to get the story. And once that person is gone, you definitely won't get the story. So that's why I always tell people to talk to the most elder person in their family. Find out their story because it is, I'm telling, you know, sometimes I go to the VA and, and there's old people sitting around there and they can tell, they have the most fabulous stories. And they say, well, my kid's not even interested in hearing it. And I think that's just, that's just sad because these stories are awesome 
these people who were born in the now you have the generation, the last of the generation of people that was born in the nineteen twenties. And they have amazing stories because that means their parents were born in the eighteen eighties and I know they have beautiful stories, but if you don't capture them it's just it just won't happen. They're lost. Phyllis, I'm going to ask you if you would share with the audience uh, your website so folks can get more information about you and about the Quilt of Souls. Yes, my website is www.quiltofsouls.org. Okay, terrific. And, uh, my book is Quilt of Souls. Wonderful. Phyllis, thank you. Phyllis Lawson, author of Quilt of Souls, thank you so much for joining us today. I expect that you will be back when you have completed the second uh, second writing of a follow-up to Quilt of Souls. I sure will. If you will have me, I will definitely be back. You are. You have a standing invitation. Oh, thank you, Dr. Brewer. I appreciate it. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a licensed medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Mind Talk is available to you daily via mindtalk.org and the Mind Talk app is available for a free download. The way to be in touch with me, if you would like, is Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. And folks, I want you to remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. (laughs) 